welcome to episode two of Sparks of Madness. Uh, this episode features another of my uh, closest friends in the comedy fraternity, um, the, the fantastically funny uh, good friend of mine, Johnny Brook, um, who bills himself as the sat-down stand-up. Um, and that's because Johnny has a physical disability that means that um, standing on the stage for even a, a 10-minute set would be a massive challenge for him and probably a distraction from everything he does on stage with words, which is um, where his real sort of genius lies, in my opinion. He's a real, um, really articulate wordsmith on the stage. Um, and uh, he has he's uh, one of those comics with a really laid-back, gentle demeanour and a really dark and, and cutting um, style of material and those two things um, have a really good juxtaposition with each other on the stage but uh, I'll play a few clips at the end of the episode of some of his stuff just to give you an idea but in this episode we talk about his disability um, how lo- the Covid lockdown is affecting him and, and generally how uh, he deals with um, the different moods that come from all of those things uh, gathering together so enjoy this episode, cheers Okay, brilliant. So welcome to episode two of Sparks of Madness, um, and I'm delighted to welcome on to the pod uh, one of my very best friends in comedy, uh, the fantastically funny Mr. Johnny Brook. Johnny, how are you doing? Uh, I am steady away, good sir. How is yourself? Yeah, I'm pretty good, man. Um, I'm, I'm uh, enjoying recording these podcasts. They're keeping me sane during the lockdown. Um, just for context for anyone listening, we're now... Is it about six weeks into lockdown? Six, seven weeks? Something like that. Um, it's all blurring in for one massive time. Yeah. Um, time is a bit like marriage vows. It's just stopped having any meaning, to be honest. It's... <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think... All I know is that the days are blurring into one another. And yeah. uh, that's what people like you um, have kept me marginally sane. Oh, which has been a good thing. So... Um, so You've been going, I think, a little bit longer than me as an act. How long? When did you start? Um, mine was July seventeen. Um, first time that I actually set foot on the stage at the Verve, um, which is just—it's weird for how quickly that's kind of just flown by. Because you're always saying you're going to do it, you're going to do it, you're going to do it, and then suddenly you're at the venue, you're looking at the list of people going on before you and realise you're next, and now suddenly all the years of thinking about it are you stood there with a mic, or in my case sat there with a mic, um, and now's the time to deliver. So, yeah, it's it's a surreal thing to... uh, to lose your virginity at. Okay, so um, tell me about your. How did you get your start, Johnny? 
Um, I was chatting to the Rachel half of the All Killer No Filler ladies about um, venues in like Yorkshire and Manchester that I could have a go at this at because I've been told again and again and again that I needed to. And because she gave me the details of the Verve in Leeds, I got in touch with them, um, wrote some words that I completely forgot, and then turned up at the venue to talk for as long as I could off the top of my head. So that was that. And uh, now for those people who don't know the Verve, the Verve in Leeds, it's just a, it's a, it's a relatively small bar and a yeah. comedy night that runs there. There's a new act, new material night downstairs in a little cellar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite a small room. I think if you get 30 in there, it's heaving. Oh, yeah. Um, so I remember actually the first time I saw you perform would have been around December 18, I think. In the yeah. Um, and I, didn't, I don't think I spoke to you um, particularly. I think I might have just said, I really liked your stuff or something really shit and obvious like that. And I think um, when we're like early in this thing, we, we just tend to be like the most polite, stereotypical Brits we can possibly be. Um, <laughs> but I think I was doing that um, Yorkshire's Got Talent thing somewhere in Headingley a couple of nights after. So I literally just did the verb as a... Um, Let's make sure these new things actually work. Um, mm. I think that might have been the, the first time that I actually um, used the McCanns and their actions as a source of material. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of the, the birth of that. Yeah. So um, the first thing I obviously noticed about you... Um, was um, your physical disability because mm-hmm. I'm a shallow prick, but obviously because <laughs> very obvious. You took, uh, you seem to take uh, obviously quite a long while to get down the stairs, and yes. then I noticed that you basically stayed at the foot of the stairs because the, the stairs are quite close to the stage. Yes, um, and then you took a while to get on stage, and I thought uh, this isn't a temporary injury for this guy. It doesn't look like this is just someone who sprained an ankle. Mm-hmm. You're on crutches, and then you perform sat down. Um, yep. So what's what's your condition? What's your actual disability? Um, it's a thing called hereditary spastic paraplegia, um, which is basically, um, say, for example, if MS is full-fat Coke, then I have the Coke Zero version of that because... It's the same symptoms, but it only affects from the waist down rather than head to toe, which I'm grateful for. That, but as bad as I am, it obviously confirms how much worse it could be if it was the um, the full strain of that type of condition I had. But yeah, it just basically means that as far as my brain is concerned, it's told my legs left, right, up, down. And because the nerves aren't there to transmit those signals to the legs, the legs are thinking, give us a clue, my bad, what are we supposed to be doing? So, hence, I move like I do. Which means that um, you spend an awful lot of your time when you're not performing at home. Um, You work from home permanently. So the current lockdown we're in for COVID-19 is probably not that difficult for you from the point of view of it being an upheaval in your daily life. So um, so you had your operation in January and we're just starting to get back to gigging 
when Boris and his lot pulled the plug on, on life as we know it. Yeah. How have you coped with having so long not been on a stage? Um, it's been strange because initially when I wasn't even allowed to like leave the hospital bed they've given me downstairs, it didn't feel like I was missing out on much because I couldn't do anything, let alone do funny. But then when you do, as you're told by the medical grown-up, so that you're fit enough to return to do that, and the calendar starts popping up reminders of pending events, and suddenly you're like, you get that excitement because when you know what some of these nights or venues are that you're down to do and how big the thrill is of doing them, and suddenly this killer comes along and takes all that away and you sort of I know there's a bigger picture than me getting out and saying funny words but I've waited ages mm. why can't I go and do it so it's um, yeah it's a weird one very 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 weird yeah I mean I've, I've obviously only had about half the time that you have not doing it and yeah. I think that I feel like that, and then I, f- I start to feel like you say you remember the bigger picture, and you feel a little bit guilty and selfish. But yeah, I think it's perfectly natural to feel that way because it's what is your normal, and your normal yeah. been taken away. For me, it's been you know doing comedy has been um, not just the time on stage, but the travelling to and from yes. gigs, and the the fact that I know I'm going to be out of the house two or three nights a week or whatever, and and, and yeah. doing something on my own for me. Which is entirely selfish, but that's my release valve, and that, Not that's it. been taken away. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. with you on that one because, sort of, from my perspective, um, like the physical issue is always going to be a constant, but it's like the mental or emotional boost that I can get from a night of explaining what the issues are to strangers and their reaction to me and the stories I tell, it almost becomes both physically and mentally like the best painkiller I can get. So when you then suddenly have that removed from your life indefinitely, you can take some comfort in that when it returns, it will be an amazing high to get again. But the fact that we've no time scale on when it's returning just makes it hard to mm. to plan around. Yeah. So you mentioned there the, the sort of the, the mental and physical boost you feel you get from performing. So how what sort of issues do you have mentally? Have you, do you suffer from mental health issues um, that have been diagnosed or is it just kind of... It, tends to, in all honesty, come in fits and starts that I know genuinely people mean well by it when they do it, but there comes times where it's almost like I stop existing as a human. I'm just symptoms they want to talk to or symptoms they want to talk about. Hmm. People seem to stop asking about you and your life and just purely about how's the legs, how's the foot, how's the legs, how's the foot. And when you sort of realise that, not that no one cares beyond that, but it seems to be the only thing that anyone wants to talk to you about. It's like you've gone out of the house to get a distraction from that, to talk about other things than that or do things that distract you from it. And so when all these well-intentioned people are just purely 
drawing your mind back to where you're trying to take it away from it just sort of throws the mind out in that sense that the very thing that's supposed to distract you from it is now becoming more of a focus on it and because then you can't switch off from that you're forced to again sometimes start asking yourself different questions about how it is that you are dealing with it how it is that you're approaching it what the bigger picture is that may be from your own perspective you've not seen but some well-meaning stranger has suddenly said something about or what about if and suddenly you find your mind just sort of racing off at speeds and tangents that suddenly obviously it's not done anything to change the physical pain but now you suddenly mentally feel worse about the physical state you're in and it's like where where do you begin trying to move on from that or recover from that because ultimately the physical issue won't change and it's how you find sort of space in your mind to again accept whatever state we're in at that time and what the likely sort of after effects of it are going to be so it, it's a tricky one, so I'm trying to find the right path to try and guide your mind down, to not mislead yourself about anything, but not be so hung up on the dark times that you let them own you. Yeah, and I think one thing that anyone who's seen your your material, and I'll probably include a few clips of your, your stuff as part of this, um, will know is that while you talk about your disability on stage it doesn't define you and you don't only talk about your disability on stage. You talk about all aspects of life. Um, and I think that's really important, but do you ever feel like you're, you're like you say, it sounds like you feel like you're sometimes pigeonholed as being a disabled act yeah. rather than just a good funny act. Is that how you feel? Um, it, it tends to be a bit hit and miss. There's sometimes where it feels very much that case of, well, if we put him on, that's an equal ops criteria that we've met. Mm -hmm. So there are some times that you feel a bit like that, that your material isn't in any way actually the reason that you're on tonight. It's purely a, we can put down that we've included something from every demographic. Um, yeah. Although but, you are still a straight white male, so... Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the, this is it. It's on the poster. Everyone's a straight white male, but he's got crutches. So yeah, <laughs> it works. Um, um, but then there's the other times where, because like you say, there's bits of the material. Just, be it about, just start that again, mate, because you're cutting out again for some reason. Oh, sorry. Um, but like you were saying, there's other gigs that are booked where. Is it all right? Yeah, you're clearer again now. Oh, lovely. But yeah, like you were saying, there's other gigs where because of the material that moves on from the disability stuff and just sort of covers life in general from the angles that I do, it's nice when you know you're booking stuff that you're getting despite of the disability stuff, not because of it. So, mm. yeah. It's a weird what's, one. what's interesting is it's a, it's a time at the moment where when you look at sort of, I don't want to say mainstream comedy, but the comedy that, that is visible to people who don't go out to, to gigs, yeah. so the punters, it's become in the last couple of years there are more 
obviously disabled acts out there. So yes. I'm thinking, obviously, Lost Voice guy won um, Britain's Got Talent. Yes. And uh, just lately, Rosie Jones, who has cerebral palsy, has been um, quite visible and, and prominent. Yes. And, and a few acts like that that, again, I don't think... I mean, Lost Voice guy, it's probably hard for him not to in some way be defined by a disability. Yeah. But um, they both have material that... that <laughs> For pardoning the pun, stands on its own feet. Yeah. Um, that yeah. that you know is is clever, is funny, is is and and it's almost in you know the disability becomes something that if you've never seen it before, you notice for a few minutes and then yeah. you're listening to the material. And I think, um, in that respect, less often the good acts are you being used as a diversity tick box exercise. I hope yes. so. Anyway. Um. The thing with you, though, is that some of your material is is very dark. You touched on it earlier with um, the, your your mentioning of the McCanns. Um, yeah. And your now, a it's not a new story. The McCanns, the issue of Madeleine McCann's disappearance has been around for years. Yeah. Um, a lot longer than she was. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I almost stole that from you. Um, uh-huh. But I think that that your willingness to to throw in you don't actually you almost don't talk about the McCanns as an issue you use that story as sort of metaphor for other aspects of your life which gives gives the issues a a lightness that the audience gets shocked by the fact that you can mention it as a as a sort of a throwaway comment Mm -hmm. um to sum up another aspect of your life is yeah it gives it a bit of a new license to do it it's not hack for that sort of one of that phrase um was it a conscious decision you mentioned that that gig i saw you at back in december 18 was the, one of the first times you'd used it was it something that that you just said sorry i'm going to try something new or was it something that crept in or, or what? um yeah i think what i thought in my head because i think at that point i was still if i'd done more than 20 gigs it wasn't many and i just thought i've got to have more I can talk about than just when I went to the doctors. I've got to find some way of making this so it's it's not just like factual bullet points of um, what happens when I talk to people from the NHS. How can I layer in there things from everyone's life from an angle that when I add them to my story, it's still my story, but with, like you say, sort of metaphorical things that are in there that just sort of make it tangible to anyone that doesn't know me from Adam. And the first time they've seen me is in the four minutes they've been clapping me up on stage while I'm moving as badly as I do. So... I wouldn't say the McCanns were like my goal to do. It just seemed to be that when I did one that worked and then two that worked and then three that worked and then just kind of realised that um, um, it just works and people seem to either like it or hate it enough that I can then work with their reaction of not liking it to change that into something for them to laugh at so um yeah, kind of whatever's happening it jolts the audience into yeah. some sort of action it's because it's i do think it's impossible not to react to it even if like you say their reaction is how fucking dare you yeah it's a reaction um and that's so much better than being bland 
um yes i think is the, is the key thing so in terms of so obviously from what i rem- remember with talking to you about it before has your disability become something that mainly sort of started having a major impact during adolescence then um, um it was roughly around like early 20s yeah. um that it first started to kick in and become something i think um Again, looking back, didn't really realise it at the time because of how ridiculously and stupidly laid back I am about life. But it was then genuinely more of um, a mental issue than a physical one because when, as far as you're concerned, you are just still trying to go about walking from the station to work or work to the station, but you've strangers staring at you like you are basically subhuman scum because you aren't walking properly. It's kind of that way that it throws your head out, that it's like, I'm not expecting a pride of Britain for carrying on working, Mm. but none of you know me, but you're all staring at me like you know everything about me and I'm actually one of the worst humans that's ever lived. And it's trying to get over that hurdle of I can't let this win to the point that I then stay in because of it, but it keeps happening every time I'm out and every time it happens, it wears me down that bit more. Um, And I think it's where comedy became sort of um, a release valve for that because when I could then use comedy as an area where I can then tell these stories to strangers and for as much as it might have bothered me at the time that was two or three minutes of my life that it bothered me but I can then get numerous nights out of getting sort of the laughter and love of strangers for a bit by telling them how mad life is if I brave leaving the house so obviously you've had um, times when you've been under, well, probably quite long time now under the care of doctors for the yeah. physical aspects of your your health. Uh, yep. Have you had to had calls to to seek help for your mental health? Um, there were one or two offers. Um, I've had my third set of surgery now, and I think after the second set, um, there were offers, but that's just because. I, I walked out of work one night and I was stood waiting for my taxi and one of my bosses asked if I were all right and I just stood there and just started crying because it was just, mm. you know you're not right physically and you know it's starting to really grind you down mentally, but it's that sort of British stiff upper lip spirit of carry on, it'll be fine, carry on, it'll be fine and pushing yourself, again, physically and mentally to do what you can't to try and look okay and it was like the first time someone asked me if I was all right was the moment where everything just went um so I think at that stage because you know the NHS unfortunately under this government has so little funding for so many vitally important services once it became clear that it could be any number of months before I actually got to see someone. Um, 
I just took to trying to do more gigs, talking to more people, being off work at that stage. And thankfully, um, because I have myself some good ears to bend on like a friend and family level, that seemed to guide me yeah. through. Kind of managing your own mental health. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I remember when I first, so I, I was under the care of them for my mental health about 10, nine, 10 years ago. Um, and the, the length of time it takes to, to actually get the help yeah. is something that can put you off of seeing it through. So they're telling you that the if they give you the pills for depression, they'll, yeah. they'll take potentially six weeks to kick in. And instead of you being able to get the help you might need in those six weeks while you're waiting, it might be another six weeks after that before you're able to speak to someone professional yes. to get the help. So I think it's interesting that you've clearly had some of those issues, but you've almost yeah. ended up sort of self-managing because of a, a lack of, of support despite the fact that that we know the NHS are doing all they can the mental health provision has been decimated um absolutely so I think what kind of threw me under that particular train was having a number of friends that were say further down the mental health road issues than I was and having spoken to them about Clearly, like the frontline staff couldn't be any more helpful, couldn't be any more caring, couldn't be any more supportive. But the physical amount of access you got to those staff under this government was so rare that some of them were feeling almost worse for the fact that while they had the help, they felt better, but they then had to wait so long for further help that... Mm it almost made them feel worse than they did before they saw someone. So I thought, for how I'm feeling at the moment, because what I try to factor in is I'm on a lot of medication for the physical ailments, and a lot of the side effects of those include sort of threats to um, things like anxiety or depression. So, again, part of me was trying to factor in is this me? Is this a side effect of the medication? Is it a bit of both? How do I try and work this out? And as I say, I've, I've got to just put my hands up and say, just through pure good luck and having good people that I could talk to at the dark times, it helped me just sort of find that bit of context that didn't brush under the carpet the things that troubled me, but helped me see them from a brighter angle that kept me in a happier place than I thought I was drifting towards without them. Hmm. So you've talked about support from, from people in terms of yeah. within the comedy industry. I know that, that uh, you're uh, a part of a group chat with me and a couple of other acts um, yeah. that we kind of keep each other sane generally and uh, yes. have a chat. You know, is that something that really helps? Um, Massively, um, because I know just the fact that whether it be just that we literally have, could be four or five minutes that we're typing at each other and it's where you're having your good days, the people there that understand how good that day or that achievement or that gig booking is and their sort of reinforcement of that makes the happiness even better. But we're also there for each other where it can be anything. Like you say, it can be 
a calendar reminds you of a gig you were so looking forward to that now isn't happening or just the tedium of life at home as we have to live it now and whether it be again a typed out chat or we have a little video call on a night just things that we can sort of talk through and talk out just to get us through sort of the emotional jungle um it definitely is doing incredible work just to keep my mind at least in a, a healthy shape it's it's the thing i've found useful is that it's handy to have that um group of people who just get it when you're talking yes. about stuff so we mentioned earlier about that thing about you know missing a gig that's coming up because of the lockdown and then feeling a bit guilty about the fact that actually people you know 20 20,000 people now have died you know it's ridiculous yeah. to it feels ridiculous to be worried about the fact that you can't travel for 90 minutes somewhere to do 10 minutes to 15 people or something like yeah that. but um not it's not just that before the lockdown as well what i found useful is people outside the industry don't necessarily understand the inner workings of it especially at our level where we're we're all breaking into regular or semi-regular paid work. Yes. We're on the cusp of, you know, within a year or so, making that much a, a much bigger move towards regular paid work. Yeah. But we still have to apply for X amount of gigs a week to potentially not even get a reply from those people that you're applying yes. to because they get so many. And I know as a booker, you know, if, you, if you're booking anything with even a, a, a modest fee, you'll get um, a... a, yeah. a a decent amount of replies that are too much to reply to. Um, um, sorry, my daughter was just talking to me there mid-recording, so apologies. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you, you have to reply to all these gigs. You get, uh, yeah. you get you get no replies, and when you're someone whose natural mental health makeup is someone that craves approval, and let's face it, yes. if you're in comedy, you crave approval and validation. Oh, big time. And Approval pretty much is my heroin. It is the thing that I need injecting into my veins. And then when you apply for a gig that you know you're good enough for and don't even get a reply, um, and you've done that maybe 20 times that week, it's very easy to plunge into imposter syndrome, self-doubt, all of that. Oh, And so far, we've all pulled each other out of that regularly, haven't we? Yes. Because it is... I, I, again, can put my hands up to that. There are those times where... There's that really big high of you will do what we'll call like a marquee gig or a marquee venue and your feeling of that night, your feedback from that night, you're absolutely on cloud nine and there's no fully dressed feeling like it. And you don't automatically assume that means that's it. I'm three rungs up the ladder. I'm about to start flying. This is incredible. But you imagine there has to be doors that that will open. And then you suddenly realise there's nothing more coming from it. And again, mm-hmm. you look at be it other mates in comedy you have or things on Facebook and suddenly see other people starting to book things that, like you say, you've emailed about, you've inquired about, and you're thinking, how, how am I not getting anything for that when I did mm-hmm. so well at that place? Why? I'm actually. I, I think that's sometimes harder than uh, harder to process than if you go out and have a shit gig. So oh, if you if you go out and you've been if you if you feel like you've been you're really sharp and you're at the top of your game and you you feel like you're on the on a peak and you and then you're not getting work. Yes. You think 
is my best good enough? And that can be a really soul destroying as well. Because um, I think, in all fairness, like particularly the group that you mentioned to there, um, it was chats with you boys that pretty much prevented me from just sort of hanging the mic up in January because I'd had quite a few big gigs up to the surgery and they'd all gone really well. All that lovely feeling of both the crowd, the other acts, the bookers all coming to find you personally and talk about how much they enjoyed it. And then it was again and again and again, just nothing more. It just seemed to be, it's like, if I'm doing this as well as they're all finding the time to tell me I am, why can't I book anything else off the back of that? Why is there no momentum to come from proving how, when given a big show, I'm excelling at it? Why am I bothering to do this? And because... Mm those of you in that were able to see that and you felt it and you've experienced it. You knew what to say and how you felt about such times yourselves. And that sort of kept me on the right track then because I was just sort of genuinely at a point of, you know, what's the point? This is just making me feel worse about comedy as a life rather than better. So yeah, it's definitely, a safety net that I wouldn't want to try and do um, the comedy tightrope without. It's one thing I, that surprised me about comedy actually is, is that when I when I first entered it, what is it now? Twenty months ago or whatever it is, um, no, eighteen months ago. Um, the the kindness of others within the industry, yes. and some of it, some of it is super. I mean, clearly superficial. There are elements of yeah. it which are politeness and and and. Like you know, like I say, quite shallow, superficial lines. Yeah. But actually, in in moments of need, I have found that there have been fantastic people at all levels of the industry, up yes. to people I've seen and seen on the Absolutely. telly, who are really supportive of that element of the struggle and want you to do well. And it's yeah. not, although it's a competitive industry, it doesn't feel like. Uh, it's a, it's an entirely cutthroat industry. There are people in it who will be, but on the whole, yes. everyone's rooting for everyone. Which it, it was, it took me by surprise actually, because I thought that imposter syndrome was going to be a nightly occurrence. My yeah. first proper gig with proper comedians when I went, and I was the unpaid open on a pro yeah. bill, and I thought I've got no right to be here. Yeah. And uh, Rich Wilson was was on the bill, and he was phenomenally kind to me. Yeah. Um, and it and it just kind of made me think. Oh, I can I can actually be around these people. Yes. And 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 almost become one of them, which is which is what I want to do. So, do you find um, that you're when when you're in a low place? Yeah. Do you find that that gigging becomes harder, or do you find that it becomes more important, or is it both, or, or what? Um, I. I'm trying to think how to... I mean, firstly, what you said there is just the most perfect description of um, the environment within and the workings of it, so well done to you on that one. But <laughs> it, it might sound strange, but some of my best gigs often come from when I'm at my lowest stage. 
because a lot of my material is call it low key or dark or combination of the two a, a sour mood almost adds an extra level to the delivery of it mm. and so when that then adds something to that and the crowd get an even bigger love for me and what I'm doing it's like I might have gone in there feeling sort of emotionally overdrawn but then come out of it having had their reaction to these things feeling quite mentally wealthy um where there's other times that i've gone in feeling quite happy enough and i've gone in and it's certainly not gone badly but they've not properly loved us as the same set has been elsewhere and then it kind of flips the other way that I then tend to go home feeling, well, what have I done? What was the point of that then? So it's it's really bizarre how the reaction of strangers can just sort of have such a, a, a catapulting effect on how you feel about comedy as a thing. Mm. So getting towards the end now um, yep. of the podcast not like Bye. existence although it feels that way at times yeah um, um and i've got a question that i wanting to ask everybody that comes on the podcast yep. um but yours is going to be a, a bit of a double header actually um mm-hmm. so um the first one would be if you could um be offered the chance that for the rest of your life your mental health would be in a in a healthy place on an even keel um no no bleakness no none of those dark days for the rest of your life but the cost of doing that was never picking up a mic again on a stage would you take it um i i don't think i would because and i know this might sound a a weird way to describe it it's like you can only appreciate how nice the sweet tastes when you've experienced the sour. And so a level flat line that comes without the ups and downs is something that I don't think would do for me. I need both ends of the spectrum for, for me to be me. Mm. And do you think that's typical of most comedians? Do you think that, because there's, there's obviously a prevalence or a perceived prevalence of mental health issues among the comedy fraternity or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Do you think that most comedians um, are maybe better for it as acts? Um, personally, I would say so, because when we look at, be it friends that we're close to or acts that we just see regularly on the circuit, you sense that a lot of the best material that is used has come from their reaction to negative or weird events that have come along in life and how their personality has allowed them to convert that setback into material that they can take to a stage with and get that reaction of, like you say, it might be 15 people, it might be 300, but when you've turned your setback into 
90 seconds of material that you're having to stand back and wait for that audience to stop howling at, the buzz of that almost justifies how bad you felt at the time that you've written about. Hmm. Or it does for it's me at least. Anyway, action, I don't want to say. That's yeah, for everyone. I get that. Okay. Um, and then, so that question I asked you about um, your mental health being kind of permanently fine for no gigging. If, yeah. if you could have your, your um, full use of your legs um, without the, the spasticity, or the, yeah. <laughs> the spazziness, as you call it. Exactly. Right. But you, but the same same transaction. You you're not getting on a stage again. That might be a harder one for you to answer. I don't know. But what would you do there? Um, it's such a weird one because the immediate reaction is yes, because this is now a good fifteen years of pain and fractures and cramps and. Drugs are lovely if they're taken for happy purposes, but when it's just to survive, it becomes very dull. Um, So the idea of all that becoming a thing of the past and crutches being something I can throw in the shoe cupboard rather than need to live with, um, that is very tempting. Very, very, very tempting indeed. But... I think I just genuinely miss too much being approached by strangers in pub toilets that want to shake your hand because something you said were that good. And just that sheer horror of, mate, I've literally just watched what you've had in that hand. I do not want to touch that. I do not want you to touch me. But somehow I'm going to come across as the ignorant prick if I don't want to shake it um it, I, I think I'd, I'd probably i'd have to carry on with the funny because normality can't give me the same buzz as you know a room full of strangers laughing at a story about my daughter calling me a spastic <laughs> yeah which she does yeah she does well, a lot I thought I thought you might be about to say no, fuck you, comedy. I want my legs back, but yeah, your your loss is the comedy industry's gain, mate. Is what I'll say to that one. Yeah, uh, indeed. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm glad you're disabled, but <laughs> well, I, I suppose I'm glad I'm disabled every 28 days. <laughs> Free money, yay! Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Listen, it's been great talking to you. And Absolute pleasure. On, and I'm sure we'll speak again. Probably today at some point on Facebook. Indeed. That'll be awesome. uh, I'll be in touch soon. All right. Take care, sir. Bye. Bye. So that was episode two, and that was Johnny. And uh, as promised, here are just a few clips um, from one of his sets um, at a backyard comedy club, um, which will give you just a flavour of what he does. I hope you enjoy.
따라. Now, um, if you were paying any attention during the 20 odd minutes that you were clapping us up at, yeah? <laughs> you might have noticed that I walk a little like someone who's been dry bummed by Bigfoot. <laughs> I can confirm this limp has no um, take a break, letter of the week backstory to it. <laughs> and just what the NHS calls a bad disabled or this loving government calls fit to work. <laughs> silver lining to my disability cloud. Um, probably the fact that I've spent about as long on this sick now as Maddie spent on Portuguese land. <laughs> and speedos, so <laughs> a benefits assessment, this is not. <laughs> I 
I'll give him the short answer of their fault. <laughs> now he proceeds to give me what could be the greatest advice in my lifetime, but as a rule, if you want me to listen to you while you're talking to me, then don't talk while you're scrubbing your dick like it's a wine stain in carpet. <laughs> Them words ain't sinking in. Um, but, um, listen, um, you guys have been incredible. I've been Johnny Brook. Thank you for having me. That's uh, Johnny Brooks material. Hope you really enjoyed that. I do. Um, he's one of the comedians that every time I see his set, even though I've seen it before, makes me laugh every time. Um, and uh, if you're interested in what he does, Google Johnny Brook, the sat down stand up, and you'll be able to visit his excellently designed website or his Facebook channel or YouTube um, and find out more. And then when all of this is over, why not go and see just how long it takes him to get onto a stage um, when he's actually gigging somewhere near you. Uh, next week's episode features um, someone I would have probably called my comedy mentor the fantastically funny singer actor and comedian james bays so check back next week for episode three of sparks of madness take care bye-bye sparks of madness is hosted by graham rayner and is a gag and bone band comedy production thank you